The closest star to the sun is a little over four light years away from us. But if you could move to the very core of the Milky Way, there would be well over a thousand stars per cubic light year. Can you imagine a sky with that many stars all around you in all directions? It would be overwhelming. And yet, all of that gas and dust at the center of the Milky Way obscures our view in visible light telescopes. But infrared telescopes can peer through that material and start to resolve all of those stars and give us some really valuable insights into what's going on. And of course, the greatest infrared observatory is the James Webb Space Telescope. My guest today is Professor Adam Ginsberg, who works at the University of Florida's Department of Astronomy. He had that question, what does the center of the Milky Way look like in JWST? and has taken the images and made some quite surprising findings. Uh, ice at the center of the Milky Way in places that you would not expect ice to be. So enjoy this conversation with Professor Adam Ginsberg. We talk about what the center of the Milky Way is like, what kinds of observations JWST is doing, and how we could make things better, how we could learn even more about both our galaxy and other galaxies in general. All right, enjoy this interview. So take me to the galactic center. Like if we were to transport the solar system from here in the suburbs of the Milky Way, right downtown, and we were looking out around us in, into space with our eyes, with our telescopes, what would we see? Right, if we were to just jump into the galactic center, we'd see a lot more stars. Uh, the sky would just be absolutely full of them. If we were put in the average location in the galactic center, there are a lot of stars there. The density of stars is roughly a thousand times greater than, uh, than in the solar neighborhood. A lot, lot more. But on the other hand, there are some really, really dense dark clouds there. And if you got dropped inside one of those, you would see um, roughly nothing. Uh, yeah, it would be, at least with our eyes, we'd see nothing. Now, it would be pretty warm. We Well... It would be an inter interesting place. You know, you put up an infrared telescope, you see everything. With your eyes, you'd see nothing. Yeah. I mean, like when you do amateur astrophotography and you take some images of these dark nebulae, things like the elephant trunk nebulae or these bot globules, you see nothing. Like there is just this what looks like a void, but in fact is just dark dust that's obscuring your view to what's behind it. But it would just be if you were inside one of those, like you wouldn't see even like the closest star. That's an interesting question. Yeah. yeah. In in the solar neighborhood, like where we are now, if you jump into a bot globule, yeah, I think you wouldn't even see the nearest star. In the galactic center, it might be that the closest star, even through all that dust, is close enough you would see it. That's an interesting question I haven't actually posed directly, yeah. but it sounds like a good homework question for my students. <laughs> there you go. Um, I'm sorry, students. This one's. This one's coming at you. Yeah, that's great. Um, all right. So I guess what are the ways, I mean, with all of that gas and dust, I mean, the joke that we always make is that it's called the zone of avoidance. Like for the longest time, astronomers just said, like, we just don't point our telescopes there because there's nothing to see. So yeah, so as soon as you get past a micron wavelength, uh, you can start piercing through the dust. The, the starlight will get through and you start seeing a ton of stars. So we've... Uh, if you ever look at the galactic center, just look at the whole Milky Way in optical light, you use, you know, these Gaia images, the whole sky, they're beautiful. Uh, but the, the Milky Way is kind of roughly blank. You see these dark patches. You go to the infrared, you go to uh, the two mass survey, for example, one to two microns. Suddenly you just see it full of stars. It's absolutely full of stars to the point that it's 
we call it confusion limited, meaning that you can't resolve stars from one another uh, even with with uh, those existing ground-based telescopes. And actually, this is kind of where James Webb comes in. Even with James Webb, it has much better resolution. It has the resolution of Hubble. We look at the galactic center, and uh, we're still pretty close to or sometimes reaching the confusion limit. We're seeing, uh, in some cases, multiple stars in every pixel, uh, more at the long wavelengths than the short ones. But we can start seeing through the dust, and they're just stars, just tons and tons and tons of stars. And so, like, when you walk outside at night and you look at the Milky Way, it looks like this cloud, and it wasn't until Galileo turned his telescope on it the first time that you could start to resolve the individual stars. Well, if you take the most powerful space telescope ever built by humanity and point it at the core of the Milky Way, it's back to a cloud. They're that close together. It's Well, luckily, it's not quite that bad. We can resolve the individual stars with web. Um, with the, the ground-based telescopes before, it was closer to that kind of cloud of just, you You could see that there's like some spots that are brighter than others. You can see some stars are brighter than others, but you, you couldn't resolve them super well. Now though, like that's actually one of the things that Webb has really enabled us to do is we are seeing the individual stars. Um, and that's, that's what's really cool here. That's like, we, you know, we probably, this is the densest, maybe the densest part of the sky that Webb is gonna point at. Um, maybe the most stars you're gonna see in any field of view, except maybe globular clusters. Um, and so we've heard a lot about web being used to look right out to the edge of the observable universe to see these highly redshifted galaxies that are just starting to come together. We've seen into newly forming planetary systems, but but I haven't heard a lot of work being used to to go into the core of the galaxy. So why does this make why is this the right tool to do this job? Right. Yeah. So the, the center of our galaxy is uh, a very important place, and I'll explain that. But like, why is Webb the right tool to look there? Well, again, it's the infrared. We have to go to the infrared to see through all of the dust uh, that is blocking out the galactic center. So in on between us and the galactic center, we have eight kiloparsecs or uh, roughly 24,000 light years of Milky Way between us and the galactic center. And that path is just full of dust. The whole gap, we're looking through the galactic disk edge on. So we see all this dust blocking out the center. Webb can see through most of that, um, especially because it's operating at longer wavelengths than ever before. Hubble could do it a little bit. Hubble's longest wavelengths ha could do, just barely do it, but Webb can go all the way in and goes out to even longer wavelengths where there's more interesting, well, just more interesting stuff happening uh, in, the, in these wavelengths. Uh, plus, once you get into the galactic center, there's actually even a lot more dust there that you have to pierce through if you want to really explore what the structure of the stuff between the stars is and the structure of the stars themselves. And so let's so, get into the, the scientific questions that you're hoping to answer with your observations of the galactic center. Yeah. So I'll start with just talking about, you know, Webb is looking at the distant universe and in the distant universe, uh, what we see are galaxies that are just starting to form, right? They're, they're making all of their stars at the beginning of time. At that time, they were actually a lot denser, a lot more compact, uh, and a lot more active than most of the galaxies we see today. And really, there was just much more stuff happening in a given volume of gas than in the solar neighborhood around the sun uh, today. Our galactic center is kind of like that, in the sense, at least, of the gas there is denser. There's just more stuff happening in any given patch of uh, uh, any volume of space. 
So what we were trying to do uh, with with this project was we were actually gonna, we were looking at an infrared dark cloud. So infrared dark cloud is just a dark cloud. You know, we were talking about bot globules being optical dark clouds. Well, this is one that is even though we go into the infrared, it's still dark. There's just so much dust that we still can't see through it, even as we go out to several microns wavelength. So actually, even with web, I think we're not seeing all the way through it yet, but we might be able to. Um, yeah, and if you look at the picture, it still looks like this Colsac nebula. Like, it just looks like this dark place, you yeah. know, in the and, universe. And that's, yeah, so the exciting thing, part of the exciting thing about the galactic center, the whole center of our galaxy, like 100 parsecs, several hundred light years of volume, is actually filled with gas, filled with uh, ionized gas. There's a lot of just plasma sitting in the galactic center, and that is actually all glowing. Um, it's all producing light at really at all wavelengths, but also specific wavelengths where hydrogen is producing lines. And that's part of why we can see this dark cloud as such a prominent feature, because we're not just seeing it absorbing the background stars, we're also seeing it absorb that background uh, diffuse glow that is produced in the galactic center. And so in the, the image that's figure one, um, that one where all the stars are removed is actually showing the, the clouds absorbing this background ionized gas radiation. Um, but yes, that, that like that means it is incredibly dark. Uh, and when we're, you know, what makes it incredibly dark is that there's a lot of gas and dust all concentrated in one place. That means that there's a lot of material that can undergo gravitational collapse and form new stars. So what we were aiming to do was look and see if it had formed new stars. We were trying to find the, uh, the new stars that it had formed. Uh, we're doing that by looking at a few particular lines, uh, emission lines, uh, that, that are supposed to be associated with, uh, with forming stars. The paper that, that came out that we're talking about here did not actually find any of those young stars. It turns out there's, there are a few other challenges in the way. What we found was something uh, that I didn't expect, but maybe, you know, looking back on 20 years of literature, I should have expected. It wasn't a total surprise in the sense of... Uh, Someone who knew everything that humanity knew would not have been surprised, but I think any individual probably would have been a little bit, uh, with like maybe one or two exceptions who knew that there was a bunch of ice on the dust in this region. But that, that's what we've, uh, so yeah, the, the story here is that we found something we didn't entirely expect, but maybe we could have. Um, and that is a whole heck of a lot of ice. So, so you're finding ice and it was carbon dioxide ice, right? Or carbon monoxide carbon ice? Carbon monoxide yeah, ice. Yeah. Yeah. So not yeah. dry ice, uh, actually a very toxic thing, but carbon monoxide is the most prominent molecule in the, uh, it's really the most prominent molecule in the universe, except for hydrogen. The hydrogen molecule is more common, but carbon monoxide is the one that we can look at more often, um, because of its physical properties, its quantum properties. Um, and so we detected a bunch of carbon monoxide ice. Now, the reason we detected that one is because we had a specific filter tuned to it. There are probably a lot of other ices that we're, we just don't know for sure that they're there yet because we haven't used the right filters yet. And, and why was this a surprise to you? Space is cold. Ha, yeah, well, so uh, space is cold, but space is also very low density in general. And, uh, well, okay, space is not always cold. Remember I was saying a moment ago that the galactic center is filled with this plasma. Well, most of the galactic center is actually sitting at roughly 10,000 degrees. Now, you wouldn't feel that if you got exposed to it because it's a vacuum. Uh, a lot of space is actually very, very warm. 
And in fact, it's all the dust that piles up in a cloud that actually shields the, the stuff that's further inside from the radiation that's, that's prominent in the galactic center. So remember, there are thousands of stars uh, per cubic parsec, or, or probably, I think it's still probably fair to say roughly thousands of stars per cubic light year uh, in the galactic center. That's a lot of stars producing a lot of background radiation. That actually, we expect to heat the dust and heat the gas. And it does. We see that um, gas and dust is warmer in the galactic center. And so that was actually one of the questions. Was it warm enough to prevent the ice from freezing out or not? Well, um, pretty definitively, like there's a lot of space, a lot of volume there where uh, ices are forming. And so when, we, when I'm talking about ice, we're talking about ice that's frozen onto the surface of dust. So you can think of little sand particles that are just collecting little CO snowflakes on their surface. But maybe it's also, there's, there could be other, you know, it's not just CO, it's also water ice and CO gets stuck in it. That's, uh, that's one of the questions we haven't resolved yet, but uh, and, it's these little tiny grains. And so, like, when you have star formation, typically you need some giant cloud of cold molecular gas. Like, if it is hot, it's not going to collapse and you're not going to get those stars. And so you would expect in this environment where everything is 10,000 degrees and and the radiation, the hot dust blowing around from all these stars. It's like, you know, it's, I sort of think about places like Carina Nebula, the Orion Nebula. We've got these enormous stars that are blasting out so much radiation. They're clearing out this dust. That just seems like the last place in the universe you would expect to find new stars forming. And yet if you're finding this ice, does this mean that you have these cold pockets of gas and dust that could lead to the collapse of star formation? Yes. Yeah, we definitely have gas that's uh, cold and dense. And yeah, this is actually one of the interesting mysteries of our own galactic center is the gas that we observe there is actually much cold, well, much denser. There's a lot more of it per volume than we see in, in the solar neighborhood. You could take a cloud like the Orion molecular cloud and move it to the galactic center and it looks like a wimpy cloud. It's really small compared to the giant clouds we see there. But not all the clouds in the galactic center are forming stars, at least not very efficiently. And part of, so part of what's keeping that, that gas, yes, there's this hot plasma all around, there are all these stars around, but also all those stars, the thousands of stars uh, per, per volume, are providing a lot of gravity as well. So they're helping compress the clouds because there's just, there's actually a greater local, uh, basically local surface pressure in the galactic center to help keep those clouds compressed. So that helps make the clouds doesn't necessarily get them to the point they're forming stars. And this is the, the mystery that like, we have these super dense molecular clouds in the galactic center that aren't really forming stars. And so we're trying to figure out, well, when do they form stars? Some do. We have some really ridiculously super, super star cluster, basically forming clouds um, that are just a little bit off to the side of the one we were looking at. Um, so our target was called the brick. Sagittarius B2 is over to the side. And that one is uh, really forming stars. And the brick is basically not forming stars, even though it is very dense and very cold. And so that's that's the mystery we're trying to address. Now, that we're seeing all this CO ice, all this ice, means that it is going through this process of collapsing, but it's not collapsing all the way to form stars. It's just getting very, very dense, and it might actually bounce back out without forming stars. I mean, I uh, think... So oh, sorry, I think about this analogy of of like nuclear fusion, controlled nuclear fusion here on Earth, where like the the core of the sun, it uses enormous amounts of gravity to create the pressure that produces the fusion. And here on Earth, we can't produce the pressure, but we can make up for it with temperature. 
And so if we can increase the temperature, we can still get fusion to happen in a, in a hopefully controlled way shortly. And so is, is the same kind of mechanism, like, like when you think about what's going into leading to star formation, if you can just force the clouds together with all of this pressure, maybe you can get star formation in a way that wouldn't normally happen with a cold molecular cloud. Yeah, um, right. So like, since we have a bunch of clouds that are floating around and not forming stars, the question is like, well, what does it need to make them form stars? And it might just be that you just need to pile a little bit more stuff on top, just put a little bit of extra pressure, and then they'll come and collapse. And that's like roughly the model. Um, we, we don't have, we're working on specific details of it, but that's the idea is that gas flows in toward the galactic center. It actually comes in along the galactic bar. So you can imagine barred spiral galaxies. If you think of any of those face on ones, there's gas flowing in along those bars. You, you see them as dust lanes. If you look in the optical, that stuff flows into the galactic center and some of it hits clouds in the galactic center, smashes with it gets mixed in, and that might be what, what is needed to take it over the top. The, there are other ideas, though, that maybe it's actually when the clouds are just orbiting around, so we have the uh, Sagittarius A, our black hole at the center, all this gas orbiting it. Sometimes if it's on elliptical orbits, it might be that when it gets on the closest part of that approach, there, the extra little bit of squeezing um, is what it causes uh, the, the, that final bit of collapse that finally triggered that star formation. And we're still working on, we, we don't know which of those explanations uh, holds. Well, is the density of stars at the core of the Milky Way, is that is that due to, I guess, the interesting conditions that allow more active star formation? Or is it that there's some kind of forcing that's going on that's pushing them into a closer, like, when you think about those, those inflows of gas coming along the, the bar, and I know there's, there's a lot of other really interesting features that are being start started to see in, in say, the radio wavelengths, people are seeing these really interesting filaments that are coming, you know, in that region as well. I mean, it's like, is the whole galaxy itself conspiring to sort of make this, the conditions very unique? And the result, I mean, we see a thousand stars in a cubic light year, that's bonkers compared to where we are here, where it's, you know, you have to go a few light years before you find another star. Yeah. So, okay. Why are there so many stars there? I think that's actually um, maybe best described as uh, historic, right? That most of the stars in the galactic center formed a very long time ago. Um, and, and, you know, when our galaxy was forming, it formed like it started off small and got bigger. Well, at least that's one hypothesis. That's the, uh, um, well, an inside out formation model. Uh, but even if it, that's not the case, any way that you form galaxies, you're going to end up with most of the stars in the center, right? You have two galaxies merging. They're going to leave most of their stars in the center. Uh, globular clusters have fallen in and gotten shredded apart, and a lot of their stars have ended up in the center. So the like all of the processes that, that happen as a galaxy lives its life, as a galaxy evolves, uh, all conspire to put more stars in the center. Now, there, it also is a place where mo it tends to push the most gas into the center and form more stars there. So, yes, it's also what you said that, like, there is more star formation there. So, actually, the, the galactic center accounts for roughly 10% today, 10% of all the star formation in our galaxy. Um, so, it is actually the, like, you know, it's only a few hundred light years across that zone has most of the dense molecular gas, most of the star, well, not most, uh, 10%. Uh, it is overrepresented given its small size compared to the rest of the galaxy. And uh, so, yeah, that it's both that long history of star formation and just every process pushing stuff into the center, making it denser.
Now the brick, the the central was it the central molecular zone that you're looking at, is a little off to the side from the supermassive black hole that's at the heart of the Milky Way. Are the conditions dramatically different as you get even closer to the center of the Milky Way? Yes, right. So we think the brick is roughly 100 parsecs, 300 light years uh, away from Sagittarius A star. Now, in projection, it's much closer than that. It's only uh, uh, maybe a quarter, uh, roughly a quarter of that distance. But we think that it's it's closer to us along the line of sight. And that's part of what makes it uh, dark is, right, it's, it's on the front of all that uh, ionized gas, all that plasma. Um, so, yes, as you get closer to... Sagittarius A star, conditions do get very different. And uh, within that central roughly 10 parsecs, 30 light years, uh, that's where we see a, a different, an entirely different thing called the uh, circumnuclear disk. And actually, there are James Webb observations of that region that I have not seen yet. It's taken by a different group. I'd assume uh, there had been. Yeah, I'm waiting for that data. Yeah. And in, in fact, there are a lot of different observations with different setups because some people are interested in looking at the stars in that central zone. Other people are interested in looking at the, the gas. And uh, I, but that is one, I think that is the most challenging place to look because there are just the most stars there. And there's also a lot of very hot plasma. That's an area where we don't see any star formation today. That inner part, um, there's no sign of ongoing star formation. There is some controversy about whether stars can form or in the last 10 million years have formed there. Um, but there's also a lot of theory saying, no, you, you just can't collapse uh, gas. You can't make gas collapse to form stars when you get that close because there's a lot of uh, tidal shear. There are a lot of stresses as anything is that close to, to Sagittarius A star. Um, but yeah, that's like that's some of the big, exciting, uh, yeah, controversial discussion going on because we have the, there are stars close to Sagittarius A star, close to the black hole that are too massive, too young to have fallen in, but we also don't know how, how to make them. We don't know how to make them in that spot. Uh, but yeah, there's, if you look at the gas, you'll see images at some point of something called the uh, mini spiral. Uh, that one shows up primarily in radio emission right now, but I think we're going to see, Webb is going to have some nice images of it. And it has these like gas flowing in along multiple different directions. It's a really three-dimensional object. You kind of break that nice plain symmetry we have in the Milky Way's galactic disk and stuff just starts falling in from all, all different ways. Oh, that's very really interesting. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait to see those pictures. That sounds great. Um, so I'd like to sort of connect the large scale picture that we're starting to build of the universe with this, the one that we have close to home. Do, do the observations of galaxies, I know there's like sort of a middle range uh, group of, of galaxy surveys that's going on but also the stuff right at the very beginning of the universe. And we're seeing, in some cases, other galaxies and seeing how their centers are compared to ours, and then also watching how the first galaxies are coming together. Do these put together sort of puzzle pieces that you can use to try to resolve the mystery of what's happening at the center of the Milky Way? Yeah, um, that's really the idea. And the, the thing, the advantage we get with our own galactic center, with the center of the Milky Way, is we can resolve the individual stars. We can see and count individual stars and individual young stars. Like we will be able to see the young stellar objects, the uh, the things that are still collapsing, still forming. Whereas even in the nearest galaxy, you really can't do that. Individual stars, I mean, in, in M31 Andromeda, you can just barely do it, but Andromeda is not a very actively star forming galaxy. Once you get out past the local group, 
it's it's really you're looking at clusters of stars in a single pixel almost all the time. So the advantage we have with our own galactic center is we're seeing these really dense, rich, uh, complicated conditions that probably are very similar to what most of those high redshift galaxies are doing. And we're able to, to look at the individual stars. And so some of the questions that are, I think are most interesting to, to look at are what is the uh, mass function of stars? So the initial mass function is it's a buzzword that uh, in professional astronomy, but like it's how many massive stars are there? How many big stars are there for every little star? And we know what that is roughly in the solar neighborhood. And it's, but it's a very a surprisingly hard thing to measure. And I think our best prospects for doing that in conditions that are like the early universe are in our own uh, galactic center. Um, and similarly, looking at the conditions where gas is very dense, where there's a lot, just a lot of uh, uh, gravitational shear, these conditions we get to look at um, in clouds like, like the brick. What would it take to give you better observations? Like, obviously, you know, I'm already discounting the observations from the greatest telescope ever built by humanity, but to take it to the next level, what would, what would you need, do you think? Well, okay. For I'll write a blank check. Got, Money is no object here. So, yeah. you know. Uh, we've got a lot of, uh, a lot more to do with, with web before we get into that, but like, uh, okay, you give me the blank check one. Obviously, I want the uh, 100 meter telescope on the surface of the moon. Uh, if you're, if you're going to ask me those questions, sure. Yeah, uh, but yeah, like, yeah. Uh, what we're looking at in the next couple decades with like really practical, sort of practical things is we're going to have the 30 meter telescopes on the ground, um, and they will have infrared capability. They'll be able to look at some of the same things Webb does with even higher resolution, but they're not going to be very wide field of view. Um, meaning they're going to only be able to zoom in on individual parts. So we kind of need web to help us with that finder. Um, but like some of the, I mean, I'll give you the wish list of things that could actually happen. So one would be Gaia in the infrared. Um, Cause right now Gaia doesn't really detect any stars in the galactic center. Uh, Gaia is this uh, uh, astrometry mission. It tells the distance to stars. And one of the big challenges is we don't know the distance to individual stars. When we look toward the galactic center, there's always been this problem of a degeneracy between stars will look fainter if they're further away or if there's more dust in front of them. We can break that a little bit. We can solve some of that using the infrared measurements, but not 100%. And so having something where we could tell us the distance to every star in the galaxy, including the ones that are obscured, that would be a big, a big game changer. The other thing that like on my wish list is I would love to have a far infrared telescope that has the same resolution as web because uh, right now the getting to this really good resolution where we can see the individual stars we can resolve them from one another we can only do that out to five maybe ten microns with and that's with web then from 10 microns out to a millimeter so a thousand microns in that range we really don't have anything with comparable resolution resolution at a thousand microns we have oh, uh, the atacama large millimeter array that interferometer we can do that Everywhere between the resolution we have is kind of crummy. It's instead of 0.1 arc seconds like we have with Webb, it's 30 arc seconds or 10 arc seconds at best with Herschel. And there's a ton we see there, but like that, that's a very important part of the spectrum to look at because that's actually where if you have a whole bunch of dust, the dust blocks out light in the optical and even in the infrared, but it glows in the far infrared. And so that like seeing really high resolution at that, uh, that, peak uh, of, of the 
well, the dust emission right at 100 microns. That would be a really exciting thing. And that's like, we kind of know how to do it, but it's uh, very, very expensive and not a priority. So I'm not a, like, there are no missions planned that would do that right now. But if you give me a blank check, mm -hmm. I could find the people to, to run that mission. Right. That would be like a super spitzer. Like something that's uh, yeah, cool. Or um, maybe even a super Herschel. Like Webb is already a super Spitzer. Mm -hmm. um, like Web, Web operates on the same wavelengths as Spitzer. Um, but uh, Herschel is the one that goes out to longer wavelengths. And that requires more cooling on board to get even colder, very specific instruments to, to handle that. So it's a. Yeah. And, a and the trick challenge. is because you're going to longer wavelengths, you need it to be even bigger, right? Because uh, your resolution gets worse as you go to longer wavelengths. And so the, what people have proposed if they, for that high resolution is to have an interferometer in space. And that is a real challenge, but doable. Um, we, we know that like, you know, LISA is being proposed and that's a different kind of interferometer, but that sort of formation flying is possible. But actually the one proposal, you know, you put two telescopes on a, on a, a stick and you move them, um, you know, on a, on a spring move them out uh, back and forth. That sort of thing is also practical. But we're not, like, right now, That that's not on the horizon, but it's been proposed. Well, I mean, there have been proposals for a space-based visible light interferometer, like the, um, oh, there was the, uh, oh, what was it, the, there was another, there was like an Earth planet, terrestrial planet finder that was like 20 years oh, ago. Oh, yeah, 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 right. They were planning that. But infrared is a much more forgiving wavelength to build an interferometer with than visible light. So it makes sense to, if you're going to try to build a space-based interferometer, start with infrared. And then if you've mastered those techniques, then shift over into visible light. So yeah. that's a purely, what you're suggesting is a purely practical idea to help usher in this next generation of space telescopes. Um, well, Adam, it was an absolute pl pleasure to, to talk to you. Um, I guess if people want to sort of keep track of, of the work and see some of these new images and, and some of the new discoveries that you're making about the core of the galaxy, what's the best place to do that? <laughs> Take I your course. <laughs> yeah, I don't have a social media no, presence. That's, um, that's best. Or at least I try to keep it to a minimum. Uh, my website, I do actually post, uh, like I actually, I post my talks. I post my, I make uh, data set visualizations fairly often. Um, and as part of my talk, so you can find those just on, on my personal website. Um, is there any other, do I do any other kind of broadcasting? Uh, I mean, of course, you can look on Archive and um, the Astrophysical Journal. Those will show up there. I uh, may have a press release on this one. I'm hoping that we'll put out a few more images that are more on the pretty image side, but don't really have as much direct tie to the science. Um, that sort of you don't always see the images in the papers because they have to be directly linked to the science we're doing to show up there. Um, but also, I would I would say you know Space Telescope Science Institute, their their um, public outreach division, they do a really really good job <clears throat> with these making these wonderful images. And uh, I'm hoping that their uh, art team will get on this and take my somewhat amateurish removal of of the stars and uh, take it one step further and really, you know, Photoshop out the, you know, we, we don't like, we don't want to see stars. We just want to see the gas in, in, in our field. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I saw the image that you did share in the paper and you could see the potential there for what it would look like as a artistic. How many wavelengths did you catch of it? Like, can you make a three color image of it? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Right. So the image I showed uh, was really only two colors. Um, we took six uh, six different filters, and um, the the reason there was only a two color image is we had to use a third color to remove the stars. And then we had a problem with the short wavelength data. So there's some higher resolution data we have that's at the shorter wavelengths, but uh, there's a, an issue called just one over F noise, which is just describes it. It doesn't explain what causes it exactly, but it, it comes from the detectors that really made the, uh, the short wavelength data aesthetically uh, displeasing. A lot of bad artifacts that I still have not managed to work out. And uh, I, I hope to talk to uh, you know, continue talking to experts to figure out how to do that. But yeah, I'm hoping that one, if we can resolve those issues, we'll have even cooler pictures. The other thing I do want to highlight, though, is uh, there's a... So my, my project was a GO project. That's uh, General Observer. There, uh, that means that anybody could apply for that time. There was also a GTO, Guaranteed Time Observation, of the same cloud in a different set of filters. Those data are going to become public in a couple weeks, and once those are there, then we're going to have 10 different filters and we can find different combinations of colors uh, to make this even even better. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited to see those come out. That'll be the next big, big step forward. And when you think about that, that one year embargo time, that means that that, that was one of the first targets that that Webb went after just in the first couple yes. of months, because it's such an exciting place to look such a natural spot to observe. Uh, well, again, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. And good luck with helping us figure out what's going on at the middle of the Milky Way. A huge thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon and helps us stay independent and keeps ads at a bare minimum. Thanks to all the interplanetary researchers, the interstellar adventurers, and the galaxy wanderers. And a special thanks to Mark Anstis, Joel Yancey, Antonio Lofiolara, Dustin Cable, Just Paul Davis, Vlad Shiplin, Jay Dennis, David Giltonad, Modso, George, Jeremy Mattern, Jordan Young, Tim Whalen, Dave Verboff, Andrew M. Gross, and Josh Schultz, who support us at the Master of the Universe level. All your support means the universe to us.